We have with us this evening Paul Benjamin, his wife Dawn. Uh, Paul is, and, and Dawn are over there at the Dream Center. We support the Dream Center. We are awesomely privileged to have you guys with us. And uh, if you have an opportunity, please introduce yourselves to Paul and to his wife. And would you just welcome them? Um, and I believe that God has incredible things in store over there for, uh, for them. And we want to continue to support them in prayer. Uh, they're doing a great work. And we're just going to continue to trust as they're reaching into the inner city that God is going to bring his healing there in powerful ways. So welcome, Paul and Don. Great, great to have you here. Could you bring me down just a little bit, guys? I'm still a little bit, uh, the mic's just a little bit high there, okay? Don't be afraid to bring me way down. How many of you are gardeners? Can I see a show of hands? You're gardeners. Raise your hand. Okay how, okay, how many of you like to garden, though you may not be in that time or season of your life in which you can raise your hand if you like gardening? How many of you have ever planted a seed and watched it grow? Maybe you sat at the windowsill and you just watched it for, no, you didn't do that, I'm sure you didn't. When I was a kid, though, I remember planting my first grade, there were watercress. And it was awesome, you know, they germinate very quickly, watercress. That's the only reason why I planted them, because I wanted to see them grow like that. Uh, but as I grew older, that one, there was, it was about this big, okay, and a blight hit it. Uh, a curse of Satan, I'm sure it was, and it just started dying from one end to the other. There was nothing I could do, you know. And so, you know, I thought maybe I need to water it more and found out that was the problem. I was watering it too much. Anyways... When I was growing up, my, my dad loved to, uh, to garden. He took our baseball field that was in our backyard and shrunk it by a third by putting this garden in. It was what, I think it was about 15 by 35. And we planted all kinds of seeds. Now, one thing that I like about seeds is that when you put them in, I mean, imagine this, how God created seeds. These things, for the most part, they will do absolutely nothing. They will sit on your shelf for years and years. Is there an expiration date on seeds? I, I don't think there is, but maybe. The truth is, though, as soon as you put them into the ground and water is added to that mixture, something miraculous, divine, God created, happens in which this, the root begins to go into the soil and that part that was uh, encapsulated, what do, you, what do you call those two things? Some biologist help me out here. What do you call those two leaves that initially open up? What are, the, what are they called? Okay, so I thought. Anyways, they open up, whatever they're called, and every plant is unique in this way. Every plant is different. And I remember, what I would love to do is I would love to just look at the plants and see how different they were. And of course, since I love vegetables, um, don't get me started on crookneck squash diced up with butter and lemon. And, mm. Anyways, I love vegetables and I would watch them grow, okay? And it was just awesome. And then the pole beans, oh my goodness, I was used to, to these short stubby bushes and then pole beans, man, they grow eight feet tall or higher. And but prolific. But I love to watch seeds as they're planted. There's just something mysterious that happens when they're planted and they come in contact with the soil and the water and that mixture. And Jesus has something to say about that seed. 
And in Mark chapter 4, verse 26, he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself. The soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he pulls the sickle, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And we talked about this soil, that the parable in the, of the four soils in which the seed was scattered on the four soils, but there was only one that grew and produced fruit. And that was, or in my case, vegetables, okay? I like fruits as well, but vegetables, I love vegetables. And these produced a harvest. And what we talked about, according to John 6, Jesus said this. He said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And what we discovered is that this act of the Father drawing and wooing the sinner is an outpouring of his grace. And I don't know of any theologian who would disagree with this. Apart from God's grace... We cannot believe. God, by his spirit, must work in the unbeliever's heart. He must bring about conviction of sin. He must bring about a hunger for God. Something stirring within him. God's grace begins to cultivate the soil to make it good soil. The soil did not become good just all by itself. The, the spirit of God, by God's grace, cultivated that so, and this is something that we looked at last week. It's, it's not new. But the farmer does not know how on earth it is possible, how it happens that when the seed is planted in the soil, it just begins to germinate. It's a mystery. And this dovetailing and interplay between God's grace and man's faith is a mystery. I don't care what theologian believes, they've just got it down. Scripture, Jesus himself says, we truly do not know. And so my caution is to all of us, let's leave the mystery in there. But know this, that God's grace must win the heart and woo and bring that believer to that point where he is humbled and he cries out to God. And there's, some, there's a longing within the sinner's heart that wants God. There's a longing within him that comes at that point and he, has, he wants none other than Jesus. I want you to turn with me right now to Isaiah 55, powerful, powerful scripture verse. Now understand as you're turning to Isaiah 54, the chapter just before it, yes, Isaiah, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 55, I'm directing you to Isaiah 55, but the one before it, if you do your subtraction right, 54, you might remember that because in Isaiah 54, we looked at the great expansion, extend your tent pegs, open wide your curtains. And we were talking about how <clears throat> as, the, as the, the spirit of God came upon the church, Galatians 4, Paul says that this is the church, the children of the barren woman. This is the church and is being birthed, Jews and Gentiles. So extend your tent pegs, make the pegs strong and, the, and extend the, uh, the, the ropes because God wants to bring about a great expansion. Well, it is no coincidence that in Isaiah 55, he, he challenges them and he says, verse 1, come, 
All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. You who have no money, come do what? Buy. Thank you. You have no money, come buy and eat. You who are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing within, come to Jesus and place your faith in him. Now, I'm I'm reading into it at this point, but kind of not, because right before chapter 54 is what? Chapter 53, you got it, yeah. (laughs) But what happens in Isaiah 53? That is the most powerful chapter, perhaps, in all of Isaiah, in which it is the promise, 12 straight verses, promise of the coming Messiah, and that he would be bruised for our transgressions, that that by his punishment, we would have peace. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a powerful gospel message. And so Isaiah's weaving this theme in. So I don't think I'm, I'm reading too much in by saying Jesus here, the promised Messiah. But I want you to look with me at, at verses 6 and 7. And he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon And so God is challenging us through the prophet Isaiah. Come unto him. You who are thirsty, you have no money, you're spiritually bankrupt. Come to me. And look what he will give in exchange. But here's what I want us to focus on. And and then I'm going to launch and I'm going to be going to Acts chapter 19. So get ready. He says in verse 10, is the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth that will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the very purpose for which I sent it. I want you to see the purpose of God as he sends forth his word. Because as we look at Acts 19, I believe this this chapter is going to be very relevant to us as a church. Because God is wanting to use us in planting seeds and in being able to be used by God to, by his grace, cultivate if you will, the ground so that it is good ground to receive the word. And we're going to see this, an outpouring of God's grace and the sowing of the seed in Acts 19. Know this, that when the seed is sent out, it will accomplish the very purpose of God. And so when you go out and when your evangelism team, when you're sharing the gospel... And that person says, no, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not ready. Someone was, w- 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 someone was sharing the gospel. I think there was someone who was high. They, you were sharing the gospel with someone who was high. And um, this is what I've heard. And the person at the very end said, no, I want you to realize this. That whether they may have heard you or not, know the truth that that seed was planted in their hearts. And even though they may have been mentally out of it, 
I believe God's word will not return empty. And this is the way it is whenever we sow the seed. So let's turn to Acts 19. And I want us to see several things, uh, very powerful things that happened in this chapter. Because this is the chapter, this Acts 19 takes place in the city of Ephesus. And it's in Ephesus that Paul has his longest stay, approximately three years. <coughs> and while he's there for three years, he has the opportunity to continue to proclaim the gospel to this point, church, that because Ephesus is a crossroads of trade, of business, in that province, in the, the, actually that whole area that's present-day Turkey... That the gospel went to every city. It went everywhere. Because as they moved through Ephesus, they all heard the word. And they brought it wherever they went. So this, this city is significant. And I'm going to tell you this. I believe that where you might work, that where you're trying to plant the seed... That is, a, that is a significant place. That is your Ephesus. There's going to be neighbors around us. When we move into the Brio Center in June, there are neighborhoods around us. And I want you to see those neighborhoods as our Ephesus, as your Ephesus. Your neighborhood as your Ephesus as well. Let, well, let's begin. 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the, the road through the interior, that is through the interior of Asia Minor, and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now I want you to underline or highlight that question because I want us to come back to it. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively. ...about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia... ...heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul... So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. And their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? 
Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which would be about 50,000 drachma would be a day's wage. If someone were to earn, let's say, 100 bucks a day, which some of you, wow, man, that's a lot for some of you. Well, that can't support my family. Uh, but 100 bucks, you do the math. If I'm not mistaken, that, that's a lot of money. That's like $5 million. I want you to see the conviction and the resolve within. In this way, and I want you to underline or highlight that phrase, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. What we have here is God working, and I'm going to word it this way, a spiritual strategy. I believe my God strategizes. I believe that that is something within the heart of God that is reflected within the heart of, well, at least most of us. And we love to strategize. We love to, how many of you like to plan? <clears throat> How many of you like to plan? I, I know there's more of you. You're just afraid to raise your hand. Yes, a lot of us, we like to plan. I believe that that is something in the heart of God that he has put in your heart. Yeah, I, I, I was accused all my life of being, you know, you're just so detail-oriented, Mike. And then I found out, my God is a planner too. Hallelujah. <laughs> <clears throat> now, I, I will really, now that's not my wife, of course. My wife is a planner, believe it or not. She likes to plan. I, I, I wouldn't say that's her natural gifting. She's learned that, and she does a great job with it. But I, I'll have to admit, there are times in which I overplan, maybe. <clears throat> but here's the truth. Our God is a planner. He is a strategist. <clears throat> and what we have here in chapter 19 is a divine strategy in which God is winning the heart of a city. Now, can I also say, and we're not going to read about this, but the riot that follows also reveals that Satan has a strategy too. <clears throat> I want to look at God's strategy. I'm going to look at what God does. Honestly, it's a very simple strategy. But a strategy nonetheless. And I think that if we just glean some of these principles and apply them in our daily lives, God has an opportunity to use us in powerful ways. As we are planting the seed and as God uses us, maybe in other lives, to cultivate the soil, the seed that's planted by his grace will grow. We won't understand how, but it will grow and we're going to see this harvest. Now I want to tell you what I'm going to talk about tonight. I'm going I'm, I'm to say it this way. It is an understanding of the word that in our generation is growing more and more. I'm not going to say that we are all on the same page, but I will say this, that we are understanding and willing to believe the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are not willing to contain and hold him back and say, I'm sorry, those are for bygone days. 
But we see in a move of the Spirit of God here that was powerful as it broke within a city. And understand that this city was captured in demonism. It was captured in the occult, in sorcery. They worshiped the goddess Diana. I'm not going to describe the goddess Diana. I'm not sure you would want me to. Um, but uh, the truth is, many, she was a meteor, it was a meteorite that actually fell to the earth and they began to worship it and they built a temple around it, blah, blah, blah. And we have a main trade of making, building, forming idols that when Paul comes in and many are coming to Christ and abandoning their idolatry, these goldsmiths, silversmiths, woodsmiths, I guess they call them carpenters, anyway, they, they begin to lose their money, lose their trade, and they are ticked. That's what causes the riot. But I want us to see how God steps in and invades because as God did it through Paul, I believe God wants to use us like this too. The first thing that we come across is that question. I had you highlight that question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? First thing you need to realize is that Paul uses this very same phrase in his writings. Now understand Paul is saying this, but Luke is recording it. So Luke is going to use his words to capture what Paul is saying. Do you understand that? Paul uses this, for example, in Romans 8. And he says, who anyone who has not received the Spirit does not belong to Christ. Many theologians grab a hold of that. We see without the Spirit, you cannot be saved. Well, I understand this. But this that I just said is not what this is in Acts 19. He is not talking about, uh, were you regenerated by the Spirit? Did the Spirit of God change your life when you believed? That is a theological question, and the answer of which is absolutely. Now, if Paul is saying by this phrase, receive the Spirit, as he uses it in Acts 8, if he means conversion, let's word this question differently. Because we need to realize that is not what he is saying. That Paul cannot be asking a subjective question. That is something that is hidden and takes place in the heart, much like the seed and the soil. As they interact, the seed grows and produces a harvest. Let's word the question differently. Perhaps we could word it this way. Were you regenerated when you believed? I want you to think about that. Would you ever ask someone that question? Were you regenerated when you believed? Or how about this one? Were your sins washed away when you believed? Wow, you know what? Honestly, I felt this burden lift from my shoulders. I'm sorry, that's an objective answer. But I am asking you a theological question. Paul's not asking that question. Were you sanctified? Every believer, when he first trusts in Jesus Christ, he is sanctified by the Spirit. Throughout his life, he is in the process of being sanctified. And when we reach heaven, we are fully sanctified. Just a little theological insight there. So it's a fair enough question. Were you sanctified when you, when you believed? Were you saved when you believed? <laughs> now, do, you, do you see this cannot be Paul's point? He cannot be asking a subjective question. Paul is asking a very objective question. 
Because Paul's theology says this. When you receive the Spirit, it is objective. You see it. You experience it. It is not something that takes place very quietly in the heart and goes unnoticed. Do you understand the significance of his question here? Actually, Luke uses receive the Spirit synonymously with four other phrases. Baptism with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. The Spirit came upon or fell upon them. And the Spirit was poured out upon them. If you were to go to the very end chapter of, uh, uh, at the very end of chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11, concerning Cornelius' household, you will see all of these. Very end of chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11. Write that down, do your homework. I want you to be good Bereans. I want you to search this. See if it's not true. These are all synonyms, five synonyms. Baptism with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Spirit came upon them. Spirit was poured out and they received the Spirit. They all mean the same thing. Luke uses this phrase, receive the Spirit, differently than Paul does. Luke actually uses the word filled with the Spirit differently than the way Paul does, by the way. Now, if we were to look through the book of Acts, we would discover that there are five occasions, very clearly, in which the Holy Spirit is poured out. In one of these, there is a delay between when they believe and are baptized with water and when hands are laid upon them and they receive the Spirit. When John and Peter come to Samaria, where Philip has been preaching, and they again, as I say, they believed and were baptized, they begin to lay their hands on them. Observe this. I believe it's, chapter, it's verse 18. It says, when Simon, that is Simon the sorcerer, who, at least on the surface, says he believes he is apparently baptized with water, and he's seeing this going on, hands being laid and people receiving the Spirit. This is what it says. When Simon saw that the gift of the Spirit was given to them when the apostles laid their hands on them, he said, golly gee, can you give me this? Let me give you money and let me be able to lay hands on people so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. But... I want to ask you this question. What did Simon see? No, not what did Simon say. You know that one. What did Simon see? You see, what Simon saw was objective. It wasn't something that took place quietly, unseen by human eyes. It was something that he saw. There was a, some sort of manifestation, if you'll allow me to use that term... In this situation, when, the, when hands were laid on, he saw the Spirit of God was coming upon these people. Wow, if I just reach deep enough into my pocket, maybe I can have this same power. And that was his ego talking. That was his flesh talking because that is who Simon the sorcerer or Simon Magus was called. By the way, tradition says Simon Magus went on and he founded many a, a cult that would became the mother of all cults. You can read about this in Irenaeus against heresies. Something very wicked. But even as demonized as Simon the sorcerer was, or Simon Magus, he saw. And what did Simon see? Actually, if you look at all five instances, there appears to be a manifestation of the spirit. And guess what? This 
chapter 19 is no exception. Now, I don't care whether you believe that these disciples were unbelievers before they met Paul or believers. I tend to lean more towards the believers. They seem to believe along the way that Apollos believed. And Apollos knew the way of the Lord Jesus. And he taught it accurately. But he needed to have some things explained. And probably most particularly the baptism. Not the baptism of the spirit, water baptism. Not John's baptism, but Christian baptism. I, would, I, I, I don't know of too many theologians that would say Apollos was unsaved. Because as soon as he goes to Corinth, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. And you can read about it. And Paul extols Apollos as one who plants and he, or he plants and Apollos waters. Apollos was a mighty man, fervent in spirit. The Greek there means burning hot in spirit. So regardless of what stand you take and whether they were believers or not, they believe, they are baptized in water, Paul then lays his hands on them, they then receive the spirit and something objective happens. They speak in tongues and they prophesy. Now, again, my point here, and I believe this is Luke's point. We're going to see this unfold. God wants to do something objective in our midst, in our neighborhoods, in our business. God wants to do something objective. He wants to do something objective in your life. And I'm not saying he's, he's against subjectivity. That is something that's, that, that you just believe in or something that takes place in your heart. <clears throat> I've been regenerated. That is subjective. I may have had a feeling to accompany that, but the regenerating work of the Spirit was a subjective experience. It was for you as well. You were born again, but this is not that. And so what we see here is Paul asking a very objective question. Because when the, Paul knows that when they receive the Spirit, they would know that they received the Spirit. There would be some sort of manifestation. As we move along, <coughs> excuse me, Paul begins to preach in the city of Ephesus. Now, I can only imagine, <clears throat> and, and I've been kind of asking this question, and, and maybe it's just me, and there's no point to the question. Well, why does Paul, excuse me, why does Luke say that there were about 12? So how long did it take you to go shopping? About one hour, three, three minutes, and 36 seconds. About. I mean, what's it? About? About 12? Don't you mean like about 10? Or about 15? Or about, I mean, about 12? Really? So how many people showed up for the evangelist? Oh, about 13. <laughs> I think there's, there's some reason why he's saying 12. And, and I don't know. You, Luke doesn't tell us. But... Luke is not haphazard. He is an extremely accurate, detailed, I love that, detailed historian. And he includes this number for a reason. Anytime you read numbers in the book of Acts, it's for a reason. Now, it, it may be because these guys, 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of uh, the 12 apostles, maybe God is going to use them in this city. Luke doesn't tell us, but Maybe he is hinting that God used them in this city. 
So we move on, and Paul is preaching in the synagogues, and maybe God is using these uh, people who have, been, who have received the Spirit to help him in partnering in this ministry. <clears throat> but as he begins to preach, he does so for three months. There eventually is enough dissension within the, the Jewish synagogue objecting to Jesus being the Messiah that he eventually leaves. He then goes to the, the hall of Tyrannus <coughs> and he continues to proclaim the gospel to the point, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> that everyone throughout Asia, we're not talking about the Orient, okay? We're talking about Asia as in Turkey, okay? That's a province. In fact, okay. And the gospel went throughout Asia. Then we move on to something very curious. It says that God did extraordinary miracles. The Greek word there is, is, is very similar. It's uncommon. The opposite of being common. Extraordinary. That's a, that's a pretty good word. But the truth is that they are not common. So if you get something in the mail and it says, yeah, well, I tell you what. God's doing extraordinary miracles and he does them like all the time. Interesting. Uh, but if you lay down on this piece of paper with brother so-and-so, you can see his picture on the paper. I really saw this one time and I got it in the mail. But if you do what he's doing, this is his little prayer rug. But if you do this, God is going to do a miracle in your life. P.S. Send your money to. But the, the truth is that these were extraordinary miracles. Even Paul himself did not regularly experience this. What did he do? He took sweat cloths. That's what these were, the aprons, the dirty aprons, and the sweatbands around his forehead. And since he could not leave his place of business, by the way, business has a place. And God can meet needs, even though, guys, you've got to be at the office. But he sent them, and they were laid on the sick, and they were healed on the demonized, and they were set free. What? Awesome. God did extraordinary miracles. Miracles are objective, church. You can see them happening. God is doing something very objective in that city at this time. And I'm sure that these men, there's, <clears throat> as they're going around to Ephesus or whatever, they're, they're certainly not sitting at home keeping their testimony, twiddling their thumbs to themselves. They're not doing that. They, they, some, this is awesome. You can only imagine that they're telling people along with Paul. God is doing something objective. God doesn't stop there. God doesn't use Paul at this point except as a reference. And seven sons of Sceva, <clears throat> Jewish exorcists who do not believe in Jesus as Messiah, they attempt to cast out demons and do so in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They do so completely bankrupt of authority. They are not believers. They are not followers of Jesus. But they see, objectively, they see that what Paul's got really works. And maybe they can make some money doing this too. And so they try it. And you remember the scene. The, the man in whom they're doing this to, the spirit rises up within him and beats the tarnation, as my mama used to say, beat the tarnation out of them, and they ran out naked and bleeding. And it says this. Notice this. Let, let me pinpoint the verse so you can see it. 
is it just me or is the lighting really dim? Thank you. You know I'm half blind, bro. Help me. <clears throat> I'm sorry, did you just increase the light or I think you did. did. The lights just went up, right? Is it just me or did the light? I think the lights went up. I, I can read it now. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. But it says there in verse 17 that fear seized them. Like, get a load. These are Jews and Gentiles. They are not believers in Jesus. And they hear about this. Fear grips them. And it says that they held the name of Jesus in high honor. This is an unbelieving community. And God has been doing something very real and objective. And they hear about it. They see it. And it begins to impact them. And the Jews and the Gentiles, it says that they begin to honor the name of Jesus. But Shush, I don't know about you, I, and I'm sure you're with me, we're on the same page here. Don't you want to see in our city the name of Jesus honored, even amongst the unbelievers? For the next couple of weeks, I want us to see how can, a, how can the church of Jesus, not just this little local body called Powerline, but the, the church of Jesus live in such a way... So that the unbelievers around them will honor the name of Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the church ain't doing such a good job. And the world berates Christians. The world misunderstands them, always will. But what they see does not line up with what they read. And of course, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And the name of Jesus is not being honored. Especially when pastors choose to have affairs and the like. We're going to talk about this. But tonight, our main question is going to need to be this. How can I live my life in a way that lifts up Jesus in a very objective way? How can I live my life so that the power of God flows in me and through me. And, and, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know what? I'm just not Paul, okay? I'm not Paul. Well, guess what? If we move on here, it says that many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Whoa. They stood up with microphone in hand and they began to confess their wicked deeds publicly repenting, and I'm not asking you to do that, by the way, but publicly repenting, they are giving testimony to how they were caught in the trap of sin and Jesus Christ, in a very objective way, rescued them from their sin, gave them a new life, transformed them by the power of the cross. This is their testimony. They begin to publicly confess their sins. And then those who used to be sorcerers, maybe some of them were involved in Wicca. Okay, I'm joking. Involved in, in all kinds of witchcraft, worshiping the goddess Diana. And you know the Bible says that anyone who worships idols or is really worshiping demons. There is, there is a powerful grip of Satan on this city that God is breaking. And he does so very objectively. 
And as the church is openly confessing, I, I can only imagine that this, these meetings, they're not happening in these little uh, places like the Hall of Tyrannus. They're happening in a public square because those who were involved in sorcery and had been set free from this, maybe they were the ones spoken of when Paul laid a handkerchief on them or had a friend lay a handkerchief and the demon left them. Regardless, here they are now. And they gather all of their incantations and sorcery books and they pile them on and they burn them. And the value of it, as I mentioned, was about $5 million. I want you to think about that. That is a clean break from their past. You know what they could have said? Well, you know what, hun? I, I know that Jesus has rescued me from, uh, from being a, a necromancer, but you know, I've got like, what, 55 books. If we sold them, if we sold them, we would be set for life. That would, we could, I could retire early. Isn't that rather seductive? Tempting? Is that what they did, though? Did they place that much value on money? They realized the powerful work of Satan that was so real. They knew this. And they certainly were not going to propagate it anymore. You, you get this sense. This, there is a clean break here. I am not turning back. I'm going to take this stuff. I'm going to burn it. I want to have nothing to do with it. Objective. So we have these people. They receive the spirit. And it is a very objective reception of the spirit. We see Paul doing unusual miracles by the grace of God. All of this, by the way, church, is the grace of God that is moving, that is tilling the hard ground so that when the seed is planted for three years, it would germinate, it would grow. And though the farmer doesn't understand what's happening, he sees that it grows and it produces an awesome, awesome harvest. So I'm not asking you to understand this. I know I don't, but I do know this. That when God has a strategy and he begins to work out his strategy and he begins to break up, as Hosea says, the fallow ground to bring them to repentance, know this, he will do it objectively. We live in a very uh, materialistic, uh, naturalistic society. Everything can be explained naturally. All that, you know, Miracles, that, that superstitious stuff. I'm sure there's a way in which we can explain it. You know, I've, I've witnessed miracles in my life. I've witnessed them. I've seen my daughter healed. I've seen others healed. Mary's healed of, of asthma some years ago. I, I know another gentleman. He, he was demonized. As soon as the demon came out, he was immediately set free from asthma. I'm not asking that you believe that. That did happen, though. And I've seen this type of stuff. Many of you have seen it's the objective power of God displayed in our midst. And I need to move on because I've got to get to the application here. Okay. I'm getting there. I really am. Then it says this in verse 20. In this way. You highlighted that. You underlined it. Put a box around it, circled it, whatever. Stands out in this way. In what way? In this very real 
objective way that people could see and experience the reality of Christianity. And they began to realize, those who became believers realized that their old way of life, especially their bondage to the, the occult, was bankrupt. There was no hope in that, except some money. There was no life in that. There was death. And I can guarantee it. Every single person caught up in the occult will admit there is death in this. But for some reason they love death. Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus comes to bring life. And he comes to set those who are dead and caught up in their sins and in bondage free and bring life into them. Here's my question. I need to move on. It says, in this way, in this very objective way, and I would venture to say even as far back in the very beginning with the outpouring of the Spirit on those 12, through working of miraculous, extraordinarily miraculous signs through Paul, and something that Paul had no control over, operating through the seven sons of Sceva, God has this awesome plan Kind of like a, a backdoor joke in which he plays on these seven sons of Sceva. Just so that what happens there, the name of Jesus would be lifted up. And the power of God displayed. And you can see this, this opposition between God Almighty and the demons of hell. Whether they would put that name on it or not, is regard, it's regardless. But we see this battle, this spiritual battle taking place. It's very objective. And I want to ask you this. How can you live your life in this way? Does this seem like so beyond us and so unrelatable? Well, you know, that's, that's just Paul. But when the church confessed their sins, and when they took all of those sorcery books and burned them in this way, the word of God spread powerfully. That is not some word that the NIV inserted. It's there in the Greek. It, it grew. It was powerful. And it spread widely. And it grew in strength. I don't know how the gospel grows in strength necessarily. I can only imagine that the testimonies like this were multiplied over and over and over. I want to see that multiplied in my life, don't you? You know, when you're going door to door, and you have, by the way, we're in the process of doing those invitationals, and you're going door to door, and you're just knocking on doors, and you say, you know, I'd like to invite you to this. On the very front, it has nothing to do with Powerline at all. Right now, there's two pictures, very opposite one another, one of destruction, one of hope, and the, top, the, the question that bridges the two pictures is, got hope? And at the very bottom, it's just a quote from Jesus. And he says, come all to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And when you turn over the page, you can find a few things out about church, power line, etc. I want you, as you give these, and as you're offering hope in Jesus to these people, what if, what if, in your conversation with them, this is what the evangelism team is doing, what if you were to ask them, so how can I pray for you? Now, don't be shocked if people think you're being a little bit too personal. That's okay. It's worth a shot. You're going to be amazed, though. People are, some people are going to say, wow, you caught me at a really bad time. Your response could be, it sounds like you might really need prayer then. How can I pray for you? And when you pray, can you believe God for a miracle? The both of you. 
Believe God for a miracle. What if God were to answer your prayer and that 17-year-old that's strung out on drugs and constantly is leaving home, coming back, leaving home like a yo-yo, totally mixed up, dropped out of school. What if God gets a hold of him and changes his life and a miracle, something very objective happens in that family and their eyes are opened. Oh my goodness, that couple that came back, they prayed for that. And that very week, look what happened. Something is up. Maybe Jesus is who he said he is. And Jesus begins to plant a seed in their heart and he's cultivating the soil so that when the seed is planted, it grows and produces 30, 60, 100 fold of fruit. God's grace. God can use you in this in cultivating the soil. Do you realize that when Jonathan Edwards was preaching, he preached his sinners in the hands of an angry God <laughs> one Sunday. Uh, he, by the way, he was not the uh, picture-perfect person for TV. He had these Coke bottle glasses, you know, about yay big. He, he preached from what I have heard, not heard him, but you know what I mean, that he preached in a rather monotone voice, an extremely intelligent man, Filled, I'm going to tell you, filled with the Spirit of God. But when he preached, nothing. Good sermon, Pastor. Okay. By the way, never tell me good sermon, Pastor. I, that's like my worst compliment. Yeah, just don't go there. Good sermon, Pastor. <laughs> but I'm sure he may have gotten some of those. But he preached the very same, the very same sermon one week later. And guess what? Revival broke out the first great awakening what same sermon by the way church i'm preaching this sermon next sunday just so, saturday just so you know but you know what happened in the in the week god cultivated and broke up the fallow ground there was a death a funeral that took place in the church and i don't know a whole lot about this but a death took place and god ripened the hearts of those unbelievers and when he preached that very same sermon with those thick Coke bottle glasses and his monotone voice, the spirit of God fell upon them and revival in his church broke out and eventually began to spread. This is what, by the way, in the early 1700s, this first great awakening, a powerful move of God is what set America up to be able to become what it was. Unfortunately, what it was. A very great nation founded on biblical truth. John Locke, when he wrote the first and second treatise of government, by the way, he was not a deist. He used 1,500 quotes from scripture about how to found a government on the word of God. But I digress. How can we, you know, I, I remember myself when I was, give me just a few more minutes. When I was 14 years of age, God was cultivating the soil of my heart. And God, by the way, as I relate this, God's going to use you to be doing the same thing in your own home, neighborhood, workplace. I know that God has used Bruno in this way as he began to relate his testimony to the work, his people in his workplace. But in my home, my sister was a Jesus freak. Okay, she was just she was involved in the Jesus people movement in the early 70s. I visited a few times. 
um, you know, gave my heart to Jesus and then immediately could care less until I was 14, praise God, early age, I'm very grateful, but I saw some very objective things and God was planting seeds in my heart. And then my 17-year-old brother gave his heart to Jesus and his best friend, who ended up being, by the way, the best man in my wedding years and years later, actually introduced me to Meredith at an intervarsity meeting. Anyways, backpedaling a few years, he gives his heart to Jesus. They're both just just racing through the scriptures. And they're, every time my, my friend uh, Bob would come over, they start talking about the Bible. I'm like, guys, come on, chill out. We're here to have fun. And they would just begin to talk and they would pull out their guitars and, you know, kumbaya. And they would just, they loved Jesus. And man, they, they prayed for one another. And, and they, 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 be, they would talk about scripture. And I can remember, seriously, sitting at the dining room table. I'm, four, I'm like 14 years of age. And I look over there after the, my dad prayed. Jesus, thank you for this food. We love you. Amen. And my brother Dan is crying. And I'm thinking, are you serious? What is, what is going on here? This is creeping me out. I mean, we, we said grace and my brother is crying. He's at the other end of the table. I remember doing this. What is going on? And he is over there and, and my dad asks him, Daniel, are you, are you okay? And he says, yeah, God is just really convicting me of sin. And I'm sorry, I, I held up the laughter. I mean, my dad prayed a blessing on the food and he feels convicted of sin. What? And actually, you'd be backpedal. He'd been in the scriptures earlier that day. And God was just breaking him and, and, and just revealing sin and wanting to set him free. And I saw this in my life. And in my sister, she was like on another plane. She was like totally sold out for Jesus. I didn't understand all of this. Don't get me wrong. I was a really, really good, faithful Okay, I was a good churchgoer anyway. And did anything I could to kind of play sick, stay at home, etc. And of course that didn't work. My mom would stay home, read me the Bible. So what was the sense? So I went to church. Um, but I, I, was, I, I went like almost every Sunday. And here I am at 14. And I'm seeing something take place very objective in my home. And it's like, what is really going on here? That was kind of a mask. That's kind of like what I was saying to myself. But I'll be honest with you, I was curious. I wanted to really know. And then my brother kind of caught me by surprise like two months later. And he handed me this track. Man, ca totally caught me off guard. And he said, am I going to heaven? Find out inside. Man, I'm, I can be like the most curious person. I don't know why I opened that track up to find out. Except to say that the spirit of God was calling me. And you, I've, I've shared my testimony with you before. And I'm checking all the boxes. Other, yeah, check that one. I'm going to heaven. Yeah, I kept Holy Unction. Anybody here, by the way, know what Holy Unction is? I checked it off anyway. And, and then I realized the power and grace of God, that it was not by works, and that I needed to fully trust in Jesus. And I just realized, well, God, man, I've been struggling with you this last 15 minutes. I, whatever's going on, I hate this. Why am I hating this? But I need this. And the spirit of God just broke through in my heart and broke the resistance. And as the seed was planted, something miraculous happened and the seed germinated and it began to grow. And my brother challenged me, why don't you get into the word? So I started getting into the word and I got addicted to the word. And God began, this is, I love this, this is awesome. 
It was a little bit hard. It was the King James Version. Not my favorite, but then I got an NIV, and I finally like, oh, now I understand it. I don't have to translate the Bible twice. Anyway, and and so I, I, I began studying it more, and God began growing me and producing fruit. And it all went back to something very objective that God did around me in my life. And as God uses you, as he used my brother, as uncanny and weird as it seemed at the time, that was a seed God was planting and stirring up a yearning in my heart for what he had. Church, can you stand with me right now? Can you believe God with me? That God is going to use you in your workplace, wherever you are at, to plant seeds, to be an agent of his grace. So that seeds are, so that the ground is cultivated, seeds are planted. Someone else may come by and water it. But the bottom line is, let's believe that God is going to do something very objective in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood. In the surrounding neighborhoods where God is calling us to over there at the Brio Business Center. Can we believe God for miracles? Something that's objective. That in this generation that combats this naturalistic mindset. That just blows that out of the water that people cannot explain away. Let's believe God. Father, we are asking you. We're coming before you. We're humbled, God. You displayed your grace in our lives. God, how unworthy we were. And yet how very, very real you were as you brought us to Christ. Could we be that to someone else, God? Maybe you would give us the opportunity to lay hands on someone as Paul did. And see miracles happen. The spirit of God poured out. The power of God setting people free. The power of the cross. Breaking bondages. People rescued from drugs and alcohol and abuse. Healed. In the powerful name of Jesus. God, would you use us in this way as your humble servants to in some way extend the the, the gospel of Jesus and, and be used by you as an agent of grace in cultivating the soil of another's heart. God, we so desperately need you. We cry out to you, God. We are surrendered to you. Spirit of God, be poured out in this place. Be poured out into our lives. Use us, God, by your power and your mercy. Let us be your agent of grace. God, may we speak boldly. May we pray bold and big prayers, unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of what others might think of us. But may we pray with great boldness and may we see you answer these prayers miraculously, God, stirring hearts, cultivating them. When the seed is planted, it would germinate, it would grow, it would produce a fruit. God, I ask that you would use us to this end. 
bring revival, objective revival to our land, God, in our day. Let us see it, God. Let us pray it in. Let us live it, God. We eagerly await you, Spirit of God. Take my heart as you would take every single one of ours. Take it and mold it and shape it into what you desire. May we be poured out, as Paul says, like a drink offering. Use us however you want, God. That is your business. But God, do something awesome in our day, in those around us. And may you privilege us with the opportunity to share Jesus with them. Point them to Jesus. Bring revival in our land in this day. Spirit of God. We need your we need more power, God. Thank you. This is not about us. This is all about you. to me across the street. Bring Jesus to them, please. Those at that dealership, Lord, they saw the miracle of what you did. One in a million chance that navigator would be right there and I would be asked to look at it. They heard of that. They were amazed. And they, they knew that Jesus was involved. I pray for those people, God. May they remember that. And may you call them to yourself, Jesus, please. We love you, Lord, so much. You are so worthy of praise and honor and glory. This week, in everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we pray, may we bring glory honor to Jesus and may we see in those around us in, in this day in this generation the name of Jesus held in high honor because of how your church is living and availing itself to the use and the power of the Spirit of God in our day God I ask that you would do this use us Lord to live so radically that people see Jesus and hold him in high Awesome, awesome week. Men, ready to go, ready to eat, 8.30. God, I believe, has something very significant for each of us. Amen. God bless you guys.